Due to the graphic nature of these killers' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lawrence Bittaker slowly opened his eyes and stretched. His back was killing him. He was pushing 40 now too old to be sleeping on the floor of his van. He pushed himself up and slid open the door. The sun was just rising over the San Gabriel Mountains, bathing the trees in golden light. He lit a cigarette and strolled into the woods. As he walked through the trees, he couldn't help but smile. Back notwithstanding, he hadn't felt this good in years. He was finally at peace among nature. Now he understood why people liked camping so much. He laughed to himself as he made his way back to the van. He'd have to ask the girls if they were enjoying the trip as much as he was. He knocked hard on the passenger side door to wake up 13-year-old Leah Lamp and 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam. At the sound, the girls' eyes snapped open, darting from side to side. They looked like they wanted to say something. Bittaker couldn't wait to rip off the tape covering their mouths and see what it was. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're exploring the sickening crimes of the Toolbox Killers, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. This is our second episode on Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who raped and murdered five teenage girls in 1979. Last week, we discussed their chance meeting in prison and saw how their friendship developed into a twisted partnership, leading to their first victim, Cindy Schaefer. This week, we'll follow Bittaker and Norris as their killing spree kicks into high gear, as well as the police investigation, which finally brought them down. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killers. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On June 24th, 1979, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris raped and murdered 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer in the woods of Southern California. As 38-year-old Bittaker sped away from the scene of the crime, he and 31-year-old Norris smiled and cracked open a beer. After more than a year of planning, it had all gone according to plan. They were confident that no one would find Cindy's body dumped in a ditch off the side of an abandoned fire road. Now, Bittaker and Norris were bound for life. They knew each other's darkest fantasies and shared a deadly secret. As he dropped Norris off at his mother's trailer, Bittaker patted his friend on the shoulder. They'd see each other soon. Very soon. Only two weeks later, the men went out to search for their next victim. They'd been watching TV for news about Cindy, eager to hear the frightened reactions of the press. But even though the girl's grandmother had filed a report, authorities had no leads, and the attack wasn't widely covered in the news. Bittaker and Norris had chosen Cindy at random, so with no eyewitnesses to her abduction, there was no way to connect them to her disappearance. Getting away with their crime gave the men the rush of a lifetime. In some ways, Cindy had been a trial run. Now that they were more confident, both Bittaker and Norris planned to make their second attack even more brutal. They had big plans for their next victim. On July 8, 1979, the men climbed into their specially outfitted gray cargo van and headed to Manhattan Beach, about 20 miles south of Los Angeles. After spending time searching, they spotted 18-year-old Andrea Hall hitchhiking on the side of the road. Andrea was a tall blonde who'd moved to California from Ohio. To make money, she resorted to selling blood, and that afternoon she was trying to catch a ride back to her apartment. Seeing her traveling alone, Bittaker and Norris agreed she'd make a perfect target. Bittaker started to pull over, but a white convertible ahead of them stopped first. They watched with disappointment as Andrea jumped in the convertible and it sped off. But they weren't going to give up so easily. They figured that the convertible wouldn't drive Andrea all the way to her destination. She'd have to get out eventually. They tailed the vehicle for miles, waiting for Andrea to get out. When she finally did, 
Bideker and Norris were delighted to see her hold out her thumb once more, just as they'd hoped. As the van approached Andrea, Norris scrambled under the plywood bed they'd installed in the back. Bitteker thought Andrea would be more likely to accept a ride if she thought there was only one man inside. Norris grinned under the bed as the sliding door opened and Andrea stepped inside. Hiding from the girl made the whole thing even more thrilling. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to former FBI profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole, the lead-up to Bitteker and Norris's crime, wherein they pretended to be good Samaritans offering a ride, was likely part of the excitement for them both. It offered them another way to dominate their victims. By luring a girl in under a false impression, the men may have felt as if they were controlling her very thoughts. It made them feel powerful and primed them for the violent domination to come. With these feelings in mind, Norris laid in wait under the bed inside the van, muscles twitching in anticipation. Bideker started driving, telling Andrea she could grab a drink from the cooler in the back. She happily accepted the offer. Once she had her drink, Bideker cranked up the radio. That was the signal. The sound of the music would drown out Andrea's screams. Norris burst out from under the bed and wrapped his arms around Andrea in seconds. She yelled and kicked backwards, almost managing to free herself from Norris's grasp. But Norris was a big man, and he had served in the Navy. After a heated struggle, he managed to wrench Andrea's arm behind her head. He could feel the girl's joint tense, on the verge of snapping out of place. The pain was too much for Andrea to take, and she stopped fighting. Norris covered her mouth and bound her limbs with construction tape. Norris threw her on the plywood bed, not saying another word as the van neared the killer's secret spot in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bideker turned onto the familiar dirt road. It was the same place where they'd murdered Cindy Schaefer two weeks earlier. As soon as the van was stopped, Bitteker and Norris dragged her into the woods and raped her. Afterward, Norris went to a nearby store while Bitteker continued to torture the girl alone. He verbally abused her, demanding that she beg for her life. Watching the look of horror in her eyes was part of the thrill. It was all a game to him, and the more she suffered, the more he enjoyed it. Bitteker felt completely dominant as he stood over Andrea, watching her squirm in fear. He wanted to remember the day forever. That's when he pulled out his Polaroid camera. He took pictures of a sobbing Andrea while telling her he was going to kill her. When Norris returned from the store, Bitteker shared the photos with him. The two took souvenirs as if they were on some macabre vacation together. But as much as Norris was enjoying watching the torture, he was also nervous about being caught. For the most part, he had been waiting for Bideker to finish having fun. When he thought he saw headlights coming down the nearby highway, he urged Bideker to get it over with. Bideker told Andrea that she hadn't begged for her life enough. He wanted concrete reasons why he shouldn't kill her. But there was nothing she could say that would stop him. 
after listening to her plead for mercy once more, Bittaker killed her. The men took her body to the side of the road and dropped her over a shallow cliff. She landed in a tangle of brush where the men were sure she would never be found. As they drove home, Bittaker flipped through the Polaroids he'd taken. The photos were exactly the mementos he'd hoped for, but he knew that photos alone wouldn't keep him off the streets for long. By now, he and Norris had developed a taste for blood, and they were ravenous. Up next, Bittaker and Norris commit their most disturbing murders yet. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On July 8th, 1979, 38-year-old Lawrence Bittaker and 31-year-old Roy Norris raped and murdered their second victim, an 18-year-old girl named Andrea Hall. With each kill, the men grew more comfortable with violence and more desperate to fulfill their darkest, most revolting fantasies. Lawrence Bittaker was the more intelligent and sadistic of the two. He was the one with the greatest drive to torture their victims, but he also recognized the dangers of being reckless. He insisted that the two of them wait a while after killing Andrea Hall. He wanted to be sure the police weren't onto them. They weren't. Neither investigators nor the media paid much attention to the two missing girls. There wasn't much to go off of, and police had a tendency to assume that missing teenagers were runaways before considering something more sinister. Their ignorance pleased Bittaker. He knew he was smart and enjoyed feeling like he had the upper hand over the police. It gave him satisfaction similar to the thrill of the murders themselves. He abducted young girls because they were easy to dominate. He wanted to feel in control of the situation. Now he felt like he was in control of the police. But his urges made the wait between kills difficult for him. The pictures he took of Andrea helped somewhat. They helped him remember the horrified look in the girl's eyes, how she had looked just before he ended her life. But the longer he waited, the stronger his violent urges became. After two months, he was dangerously close to losing control. He needed to kill again. He called up Roy Norris, and the two of them set off to hunt. 
On Labor Day weekend, September 3, 1979, Bideker and Norris drove down the Pacific Coast Highway. As they neared Hermosa Beach, they spotted two girls, 13-year-old Leah Lamp and 15-year-old Jackie Gilliam, sitting at a bus stop. Bideker pulled up to the curb and lowered the window. The girls were looking for a ride to the beach a couple of miles away. It was easy to convince them to climb inside the van. As Bideker pulled back onto the road, Norris offered the girls a joint, and they all started smoking. A few minutes later, Leah and Jackie noticed that the van was headed towards the mountains, away from the beach. Bideker hastily explained that he was just looking for a quiet place to stop while they finished the joint. But the girls got afraid and demanded that Bideker let them out. As they grew frantic, Bideker turned up the radio to drown out their shouts. At the sound, Norris reached for a weapon he'd hidden in the van, a sock full of metal BBs. He raised the sock over his head and swung it wildly at 13-year-old Leah. He clocked her on the side of the head, knocking her out cold. Jackie screamed even louder and tried to open the side door. Bideker could tell the situation was getting out of hand, so he hurriedly parked at a tennis court and got out of the vehicle. He opened the sliding door to help Norris subdue Jackie. As they held Jackie down and taped her mouth shut, Bideker noticed a tennis player on the nearby court watching them. Bideker put on his most convincing smile and yelled to the man that Jackie was just having a bad trip on LSD. Whether the tennis player believed Bideker or simply didn't want to get involved, he turned away as Norris shut the door and finished binding Jackie with tape. Panting and sweating like an animal, Bideker climbed back into the driver's seat. He cursed Norris for losing control of the girls and sped away, back to the mountains. Bideker and Norris again stayed mostly silent during the drive, but once they reached the dirt road, the men began a campaign of ruthless, dehumanizing torture. Initially, they focused on 15-year-old Jackie. They tied 13-year-old Leah up and told her that she was too overweight to be attractive. Bideker raped Jackie in the back of the van while Norris sat in the driver's seat and tape-recorded the sessions. He forced Jackie to play along with his sadistic games for the tape. Afterward, Norris sexually assaulted Jackie while making her pretend to be his cousin. Apparently, he had a relative who he would fantasize about when he was younger. He wanted Jackie to impersonate her. When it was over, Bideker and Norris tied up their victims again in the back of the van and went to sleep. The girls passed the night in unfathomable fear as their abusers dozed just inches away. According to forensic psychologist Dr. Ronald Markman, who has examined many serial killers, the way Bideker and Norris treated their victims was one of the worst cases he'd ever experienced. The reason for their wanton cruelty can likely be traced back to the way Bideker and Norris viewed others, particularly women. According to doctors Devin Polishek and Teresa Gannon, male sexual offenders have a distorted worldview that distinguishes them from the average person. Polishek and Gannon's implicit theory model argues that these offenders don't view women as people in the same way they view men. To them, women are objects made to satisfy their sexual urges. 
Crucially, these offenders also believe their own desires are uncontrollable. By thinking this way, they absolve themselves of their own actions and see themselves as blameless, even when they carry out brutal sexual violence. This meant that Bittaker and Norris had no qualms about beginning the torture all over again when the sun came up. This time, Bittaker took 13-year-old Leah into the woods and took pictures of her naked, forcing her to pose in a suggestive manner. He left her tied up in the dirt and then went back to the van to torment Jackie again. By then, neither Bittaker nor Norris were interested in roleplay any longer. Now... They wanted to hear Jackie scream for her life. Together, they made Jackie suffer for hours before finally deciding they'd had enough. Bittaker strangled the 15-year-old to death. He then turned to Leah. The 13-year-old tried to get away, but was quickly stopped by Bittaker, who hit her with a sledgehammer. Afterward, the men dragged the bloody bodies to the side of a cliff and tossed them over. On the drive home, both agreed that they would wait another couple of months before they went out again. They were sure the police would suspect a serial killer was active in Southern California. They worried they would spark a manhunt unless they were careful. Unfortunately, their caution wasn't necessary. Leah and Jackie were reported missing. But like before, the police assumed they were just another couple of teenage runaways. Though the girls never had discipline problems in the past... Detectives refused to take the case seriously. By October, none of the investigations into the missing girls had progressed, and the disappearances were still not officially linked. The toolbox killers were free to strike again. Bittaker and Norris talked in depth about their next attacks. For so long, they tried to avoid arousing suspicion. But Bittaker was now becoming aggravated that the press wasn't covering their crimes. Ever since childhood, he'd admired outlaws and notorious criminals. He wanted stories to be written about him. He later said that he aimed to be bigger than Manson. The men decided that to make an impression, they should claim their next victim on Halloween night, 1979. They changed their hunting location as well, straying from the beaches and heading into the San Fernando Valley. The valley was nearby where Bittaker lived, so he knew the streets well. He was no longer concerned about hunting so close to home. He considered the authorities to be incompetent and decided that he could do whatever he wanted without risking arrest. As 39-year-old Bittaker prowled the streets with 31-year-old Norris, the two men kept an eye out for anyone walking alone. Because it was Halloween night, there were plenty of people to choose from, but most were walking in groups. Then, Bittaker spotted the perfect target hitchhiking on the sidewalk. By coincidence, it was a girl he recognized, 16-year-old Shirley Ledford. On the weekends, Shirley was a waitress at a restaurant Bittaker frequented. Norris pulled the van over, and Bittaker greeted Shirley from the passenger seat. As she climbed inside, Bittaker could feel his muscles tense. He couldn't wait to attack. He didn't even want to make the drive out to the mountains. After a few moments, he decided that he didn't have to. He and Norris were predators, and they could strike whenever they liked. He patted his friend on the shoulder and told him to keep driving, no matter what. He then climbed over the front seats and pounced on Shirley in the back. 
Bittaker overpowered Shirley and bound her with tape. He told Norris he wanted to assault Shirley while they were driving. Norris found the prospect exciting and agreed. As Shirley lay paralyzed with fear on the plywood bed, Bittaker began rooting around for the tape recorder. He wanted to remember every detail. To put on a show for the tape, he told Shirley to talk. He slapped her repeatedly, demanding she say something. Shirley whimpered. She tried to comply, but had no idea what Bittaker wanted her to say. Bittaker didn't know either. Still, he continued to slap her, ordering her to speak into the recorder. Soon enough, Shirley got the message. He didn't really want her to say anything. He wanted her to scream. Shirley yelped in pain and fear, but it wasn't enough. Bittaker continued to abuse her, insisting she yell louder and louder. Then he began to rape her, all the while forcing her to describe what was happening for the tape. Norris drove through the valley streets, looking back as often as he could to watch what was happening. Bittaker was frustrated that Shirley still wasn't screaming enough, and he reached down and grabbed a pair of pliers from the toolbox. He waved them in the girl's face, promising to hurt her if she didn't do what he asked. The 16-year-old girl beneath him shouted in ear-splitting agony, but there was nothing she could do to appease Bittaker. He clamped the pliers down on her chest, pinching with all his might. Her wails were shocking, even to Norris in the driver's seat. He later said, If you ever heard that tape, there is just no possible way that you'd not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. The brutality was enough to make anyone sick, but the howls of pain only encouraged Norris. He pulled to the side of the road and switched places with Bittaker. He wanted to torture the girl, too. He grabbed a hammer from the toolbox and smashed it into Shirley's elbow again and again, 25 times in total. By the time he was done, her bone had been completely pulverized. Shirley clung to consciousness, hardly able to whisper any longer, much less scream. As she tried to fight through the pain, she whimpered incoherently, prompting Norris to hit her one more time. At that point, Bittaker volunteered Norris to kill her. He maneuvered to the back seat and found a wire coat hanger. Just as he'd done with their first victim, Cindy Schaefer, Bittaker wrapped the hanger around Shirley's neck. He twisted it tight with the pliers until she suffocated. The men knelt over the girl's corpse with twisted smiles on their faces. They'd killed again. But Bittaker wasn't satisfied yet. He wanted to make sure the world knew what they'd done to Shirley. He didn't just want to strike fear into the hearts of his victims. He wanted to be notorious. After some discussion, the men decided to dump Shirley's body in a public place to make sure it would be discovered. They drove up to a dark house and parked near a bed of ivy. Once they were sure no one was watching, Bittaker slid open the door of the van and tossed Shirley's body into the yard. Then they sped off into the night. In a matter of hours, the entire nation would wake to the horror of the toolbox killer's crimes. 
Up next, a slip of the tongue undoes the murderous pair. Now, back to the story. On Halloween night, 1979, 39-year-old Lawrence Bittaker and 31-year-old Roy Norris murdered their fifth victim. 16-year-old Shirley Ledford's body was discovered by a jogger in the front yard of a Los Angeles home the following morning. Investigators were horrified by the find. An autopsy revealed the unimaginable torture Shirley was subjected to before her death. Her face, chest, and elbow had all been beaten, and she'd suffered severe internal injuries. The press swarmed the quiet neighborhood where the body was discovered. The brutal nature of the murder was heavily publicized, and the city was plunged into fear overnight. But despite the attention now turned to the murder, they weren't able to make much headway in the case. Like the earlier missing girls, there wasn't much information to work with. Bittaker had known Shirley, but the two weren't really connected, so there was no way for detectives to link him to the crime. As officers struggled to make progress, Bittaker and Norris privately enjoyed the press attention. They read the papers with glee, savoring the terrified reactions of reporters and the helplessness of the police. Though they felt confident the authorities would never find them, they still decided to lay low until the heat died down. Weeks passed as investigators hunted desperately for a lead. The murders likely would have remained unsolved if it hadn't been for the recklessness of Roy Norris. Three weeks after Shirley's murder, in late November of 1979, the 31-year-old slipped up. Norris couldn't keep the news to himself any longer. He and Bittaker had committed the perfect crimes. They'd even delivered their latest victim to police on a silver platter, and still they hadn't been caught. In his mind, there was nothing anyone could do to stop them. After thinking of himself as an outcast for so long, getting away with murder made Norris feel powerful. Dominating his victims was a way for him to take control over his own life. He felt invincible and grew arrogant. He bragged to a friend who he and Bittaker knew from prison, Joe Jackson, about what they had done. Jackson listened in horror as Norris described the murders in detail. Norris lived for that look. He wanted Jackson to be impressed by him, but also to be afraid. Aside from sheer egotism, there may have been another reason that Norris confessed to Jackson. It was likely the same drive that caused him to take photos and trophies from the crime scenes. He had nothing else to be proud of. Criminology professor Dr. James Allen Fox and therapist Jack Levin speculate that serial murderers collect trophies and boast about their crimes to boost their own self-esteem. They write, For a man who has otherwise led an unremarkable life, his treasures make him feel proud. They represent the one and only way in which he may have ever distinguished himself. The pathetic urge to brag about his disgusting murders blinded Norris to his own hubris. Since Jackson had done time himself, Norris believed he would keep the secret. But there was no way Jackson could stay quiet. He had two young daughters himself and had seen the way Lawrence Bittaker looked at them. 
for months he'd suspected that Bittaker had an unhealthy interest in his children. On a few occasions, Bittaker asked Jackson probing questions about them. Now, Jackson was petrified, worried about what might happen to his girls if Bittaker had the opportunity to strike. After listening to Norris's confession, Jackson excused himself and called his lawyer. Taking the lawyer's advice, he then went to the LAPD to give them the tip. Detectives listened to Jackson's story. They didn't doubt his claims, but his account wasn't enough for an arrest, let alone a conviction. They advised him to contact the Hermosa Beach Police instead, since the crimes he described technically fell under that department's jurisdiction. They thought that officers there might be able to do more. Jackson did as they asked and found a more receptive audience in Hermosa. Detectives there cross-referenced the details in his story with existing cases on file. They stumbled upon a report filed by a woman named Robin Robeck, who had called the police a few months earlier. Sometime after Bittaker and Norris's fourth attack in September of 1979, Robeck was sexually assaulted by two men in a gray van. She hadn't been tortured or murdered, but her description of the attackers matched that of Bittaker and Norris. A Hermosa Beach officer got in touch with Robin to show her a series of mugshots, including Bittaker and Norris's. Robin immediately picked their photos out of the album, stating that she was reasonably sure they had been the men who raped her. That gave police their first shred of solid evidence they could use to act. But they still faced a tough balancing act. They would need more incriminating material to convict the toolbox killers. If they acted too rashly, Bittaker and Norris might be able to wriggle free from any charges brought against them. On the other hand, it was clear that detectives had limited time to take action. Any day now, Bittaker and Norris might suddenly decide to go hunting again. Authorities did some searching, but they were unable to immediately locate Bittaker, who was staying in a motel in the San Fernando Valley. Instead, they focused on Norris, placing his mother's home under surveillance in hopes they could catch him doing something suspicious. They didn't have to wait long. Almost as soon as they pulled up to the trailer park where Norris was staying, they spotted him through the window using a scale to weigh out marijuana. They nabbed him for a parole violation right then and there. Not long after Norris was picked up, the phone in his trailer rang. It was Bittaker. A policeman picked up the phone, pretending to be another of Norris's friends. Bittaker played it coy on the phone, but could tell that he'd been made. The detective on the other end of the line was far too unsure of himself, and Bittaker had been on high alert ever since Shirley's murder. He made an excuse, hung up the phone, and leapt into action. If authorities were on their way, he didn't have a lot of time. He had troves of photos and incriminating tapes of the murders, and he had to act fast. Bittaker gathered up everything he could find in the motel room and sped off into the Hollywood Hills to get rid of it. He managed to bury it in the woods without being spotted. With the immediate danger behind him, now he figured he just had to worry about Norris giving him away. But when he returned from burying the evidence, he learned his situation was worse than he thought. Officers were waiting outside his motel room to arrest him. Bittaker didn't resist the police. 
He may have hoped that being cooperative would lull detectives into a false sense of security, or maybe he was just confident that he couldn't be convicted. Either way, he was wrong. Though he managed to stay composed during the interrogation, which primarily focused on the rape of Robin Robeck, his partner was another story. Investigators could tell Norris was the weak link in the partnership and hounded him until he turned on Bideker. In exchange for a plea bargain, Norris gave a detailed confession of their murders, though he insisted he had never seen Robin Robeck before. With his help, detectives were able to get a warrant to search Norris's cargo van. Inside, they found over 500 photos of young women. They also found a tape containing disturbing audio of the torture and murder of Shirley Ledford. The audio was sickening. Authorities never located the other evidence Bitteker buried, but just listening to a single tape was too much. Veteran criminal psychologists and police officers never heard anything like it. Most couldn't listen to more than a few minutes of the recording, and it haunted them all for years afterward. In fact, the tape was so disturbing that it's still used today at the FBI Academy in Virginia. Agents play it to train new recruits and expose them to the harsh realities of the torture and murder they will investigate. The vile recording made detectives all the more eager to put Bitteker and Norris away. They pressured Norris until he agreed to lead officers into the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies of the young girls. In February of 1980, he showed authorities the spot where he and Bitteker had murdered four of their victims. They were able to retrieve the bodies of Leah Lamp and Jackie Gilliam, but never found the remains of Cindy Schaefer or Andrea Hall. Either Norris had forgotten where he'd left them, or else they were fully decomposed by that time. But even without the bodies, investigators had plenty of evidence for the trial. Both Norris and Bitteker were convicted for the murder of the five young girls. Thanks to his plea deal, 32-year-old Roy Norris was sentenced to life in prison. Bitteker was sentenced to death. In the years afterward, Norris was described as a model prisoner and worked to portray himself as remorseful. Bitteker, on the other hand, embraced his infamy. He frequently answered letters from people outside of prison, occasionally signing them pliers, after the tool he most used to torture his victims. But ultimately, Bitteker's bluster never earned him much beyond shock and condemnation. While waiting on death row, he died of natural causes in December of 2019 at the age of 79. Norris, then 72 years old, died three months later. Celebrating death can be distasteful, but there's no doubt many raised a glass when they learned of the deaths, happy to hear these evil men breathed their last. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with a new episode. For more information on Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Alone with the Devil, Famous Cases of a Courtroom Psychiatrist by Ronald Markman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 